Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. So we know that if we're training somewhere between three and four times a week, that even in a trained individual, right? So a trained individual in perimenopause, so even if you're like, listen, I've been training for years, like this doesn't apply to me. It totally does because you can be training really, really heavy three to four times a week. And you are going to, and if you space it out, right, let's say every other day you're training, you're going to have this post-exercise rise in testosterone somewhere between 10 and 20 hours, right? That's incredible, right? That's almost a day. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And I wanted to spend a little time with you, just you and me today, talking about Exercise considerations for perimenopause and menopause. I think that by now, if you've been listening to this show for more than a minute, you know that I'm a big advocate for resistance training. And I wanted to maybe back up and take a bigger view on why it's important. I wanted to discuss some of the hormonal transcription factors and sort of what happens hormonally when we are lifting weights and then thinking about our nutrition and how we can improve the substrate, how we can improve giving our body what she needs when we are in fact lifting heavy and what that is going to do for our body composition. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. 
In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot, as I have been doing, with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. So let's dive in, shall we? First, I want to say that one of the things that I think about when it comes to lifting weights is, yes, the aesthetics. It makes you have curves in places you didn't, <laughs> and it makes you look good in a bikini and all the things. And it also has several other, other benefits that I think about quite a bit. So I talk about this idea of being the kick-ass favorite grandmother, and dare I even offer great grandmother. And I grew up with my uh, great grandmother. She was on my Lebanese side. I remember, I remember her. I remember her face. I remember her cooking with my grandmother and my great aunts. And it's something that I strive to personally, and who, you know, who knows if I'll get there or not, but it's certainly a dream that I have an achievement unlocked, if you will. And when I think about my, um, grandmother we call in Lebanese, we say sitto. So my grandma, my sitto, when I think about her, you know, she was not the most mobile. So she was able to walk, but she sort of had this like shuffling type of uh, walk. She didn't take large strides. Her balance was a little bit off. And while I didn't understand a lot of what she was saying, she spoke zero English and had no desire to speak any English. Um, certainly, um, my grandmother, I would, uh, I would hear my grandmother sort of complaining about, you know, her attitude and things like that. So, and I bring this up because all that to say is that when we're thinking about aging, you know, right now I am a woman in my forties, I'm in my mid forties, I'm 45. And so if I were to fast forward to, you know, being a grandmother or a great grandmother, that's probably going to put me in that maybe 65 to 70 when I'm a grandmother, let's say, maybe even earlier than that, actually, uh, let's say 60 to 70 years old, I'll become a grandmother if all you know, goes according to plan. And that's what happens for my sons. Um, and then, you know, another 30 years later, call it, you know, 90 years of age, uh, I potentially have the opportunity to meet my great grandchildren. And so what does that mean in terms of my abilities at that time? So right now I have no problem squatting. I have no problem deadlifting. I have no problem running. I have no problem doing all those things. But as I age, I am not fooled by the idea that those skills that if I am not careful will degrade, it will be easier for me to injure myself and all of these different things. And I was looking at 
uh, some stats uh, this morning on the CDC, as nerds such as myself do, and hip fractures among older adults. So what happens when we don't have good uh, leg strength, um, when we don't have uh, good vitamin D status, when we don't have good proprioception stability and balance, we are going to compromise our ability to stay upright when we are walking. Certainly, if you are someone who lives in climate where there's wintertime, that is also a really big risk for uh, older uh, individuals who are 65, let's say, and older to fall. And in the States alone, uh, 300,000 individuals, so 65 and older, are hospitalized from a hip fracture. And of those hip fractures, 95% of them are caused by falling. Okay. So usually falling sideways, like losing your balance and falling to the side or falling in front of you. What we might, uh, you'll hear chiropractors sometimes if you have, if you have the opportunity to hear them talk with each other, we usually call those foosh injuries, F-O-O-S-H, where it's a fall on an outstretched hand. So you'll probably also if you, and that's what happens when you fall, right? There's an instinctive reflex to sort of brace yourself. So you put your hands out in front of you to brace the fall. And often you'll, you'll get fractures of, uh, you know, several, like many of the risk, uh, wrist bones, uh, certainly the uh, radius and the ulna as well. So we call those foosh injuries, but of course the most important uh, injury that, that we're talking about is potentially to uh, different areas of the ilia. So different areas of the hip and so we have 95% of the hip fractures are caused by falling. And then of those 300,000 individuals who are 65 and older, three quarters of all the hip fractures are women. Women fall more than men. Women typically will have more osteoporosis, uh, which is a, a disease that is going to the pathophysiology essentially is that the osteoclastic bone, the osteoclastic cells in the bone, so the bo- the cells that are involved in bone resorption, are going to be they're going to supersede the osteoblastic bones, which are the c- c- cells I should say, the osteoblastic cells, which are the cells that are involved in laying down new bone. So you and I are we have a certain relative amount of osteoblastic laying down of new bone and osteoclastic bone resorption activity all the time. Um, I have to look up stats on this to get current numbers, but the last, um, when I was in school, I remember learning that an individual up until about age 40, it takes him or her, so kind of gender, um, uh, maybe agnostic, but it takes him or her around two years to fully turn over uh, the skeleton. So uh, every two years, you have the ability to completely remodel your skeleton. And so this is something that I would share with patients who had come in from a back injury or who had chronic pain that would just not seem to quit and they were losing hope, right? So there's another, it's a whole other conversation about how pain changes the brain uh, and our outlook on life. But generally as a, as a point of hope, I would say to my patients, you know, and this was very true that you have the power, you know, the next two years are entirely up to you, right? So you can choose over the next two years to completely remodel your skeletal system. And you can do that with weight-bearing activity. You can do it with rehabilitation, with reestablishing range of motion. Um, 
all of these different uh, verticals that I would talk about um, in the clinic. And so we have this osteoporosis, right, which is this degradation, this disease that weakens bones, and there's different types of bones. So without going into um, all the details, you're basically degrading cancellous and cortical bone. So cortical bone is sort of the bone on the outside of the bone, cancellous bone is the bone on the inside, um, which makes them more, uh, it makes them more fragile, it makes them stiffer, um, makes them more brittle. And then when you apply a force to those particularly long bones or the hip, they will shatter, they will break. And other than risk factors like, you know, tripping on a rug or something or clutter in your home that, you know, any mom knows that how, like how many times I've stepped on a Lego, I can't even tell you. Um, but other than sort of obvious risk factors, like something is in your way that you didn't see, let's say, or like an uneven step or something like that. Most of the risk factors around falling are going to be things like the lower body weakness that I mentioned, vitamin D deficiency, so not enough vitamin D in your system, difficulties with walking, so that kind of shuffling that I was describing before with my great-grandmother um, with balance and stability, and things like um, vision problems, of course, which of course we know gets worse as we age, um, foot pain, poor foot mobility, poor foot mechanics, poor ankle mobility, and then even medicines, right? So a lot of sedatives, uh, antidepressants, uh, tranquilizers, even over-the-counter medicines can affect your balance, right? If you've ever given an individual, let's say Benadryl, you know that they're kind of out of it, right? They're not really steady on their feet. So some of the OTC medicines also can affect balance and how steady you are on your feet. And so why I share this with you is we want to think backwards because if we are not strategic about minimizing those risk factors, the likelihood of you falling is going to increase and it exponentially increases over the age of 65. And I use the word exponentially on purpose because humans tend to think, uh, myself included here, so I'm not, you know, poo-pooing on everyone else while sitting on my high horse, but everyone, we tend to think linearly. We don't tend to think exponentially. And this is, um, you know, an example that I've often used to demonstrate this is if I give you a penny and I say to you, you know, I'm going to double this penny every single day for a month, how much money will you have at the end of those, let's call it 30 days, right? And I've done this with my sons before. And they'll be like, oh, I don't know, like $5, you know, because you sort of think like, okay, well, there's two cents on day two, and then four cents on, you know, day three, and then eight cents, and then, you know, and on and on. And the answer is something like $10 million, because and and, and up until about day 25, when you're just doubling the amount, it really isn't anything until you get to about day 25. And you can just do this on your calculator, just put, you know, uh, 0 0.01 on your calculator, and then just double it and keep like, pre keep pressing the equal sign. And you'll see if you do it 30 times, by the end of the 30 times, you've pressed that you're in the millions of dollars, right? And this is just that I, I share this just to say that we tend to think more linearly, we think, well, you know, maybe I'm a little bit slower now in my 40s than I was in my 30s, it's going to continue like this rate of degradation, let's say, uh, this is how I'm going to age. And it doesn't actually happen like that. You know, there tends to be this exponential fall off the cliff if we are not being careful, where 
all of a sudden we are, we lose strength. We, we become dynapenic. All of a sudden we lose speed. All of a sudden we can't sleep. All of a sudden these things just fall off a cliff that we are entirely unprepared for. And just to kind of share a little bit of maybe stats that I think are, are very scary, 50% of people who fall and are hospitalized never come out of the hospital. Okay. Um, so they've had some type of hip fracture, like they never come back from it, like half of the individuals over 65 years of age. And 35% of individuals who have a hip fracture are dead within a year. So these individuals that are over 65, because they may die from the fracture itself, because it is a life threatening, depending on how the hip fractures, um, you can sever very important arteries. Um, so you can be dead from the injury itself or something that's more secondary. So something like, you know, if you're in the hospital, let's say, and maybe you, uh, because your immune system is weaker, you acquire, you know, pneumonia or some type of superbug that is, you know, circulating in the hospital and that kind of does you in. So we want to be thinking about how our peak strength um, and truthfully speed uh, changes over time. So I have always been focused on strength. I used to be a track runner. I used to run track and that was sort of in my high school um, years. And now in my forties, like I'm marginally different, right? Like my speed, my ability to generate and sustain speed is very, very different than what it was when I was 16 or 17 years old. And so actually speed is one of the things I've started paying more and more attention to in my forties than I ever have before, because that is the first thing that goes is speed. And I'll sort of give you like a quick actionable item before we start talking about hormones. But for me, now I am trying to do intervals. So I'm trying to do speed intervals on the bike. I have a, you know, a home bike, you know, a bike at home that I've sort of fitted um, that I can do speed intervals for four, five, six minutes, let's say, um, sometimes 10 if I'm feeling like really sprightly. And it's basically one minute on and then one to two minute recovery, and then one minute on, and then one to two minute recovery. Um, and then there's also, so those are kind of what you might think of as HIT training, so high intensity interval training. And there's also super maximal interval training. So when you go from uh, zero to your absolute max and even superseded for a very short delta, and then you're kind of done. So one or two, and this is something that I've been learning recently. Um, and I'll maybe talk about this on another podcast when there's time, but I've, uh, started using, um, an apparatus called the Carol bike, which is basically, um, an algorithm driven, um, bike. So there's AI in the bike and it sort of matches the resistance to your, um, to your FTP, your functional threshold potential. Uh, it measures your heart rate, how quickly you're recovering from things. And it sort of designs workouts for you based on that, which is something that I've really, really loved because strength is not something that I either I'm currently worried about. Um, I'm very good at mitigating injury. So I know how to rehab if I do get injured. That's one of the blessings of my profession uh, and knowing how to rehabilitate the body. Um, but speed is something really, really important. So that's something that I would like you to consider. So as a takeaway is one, if you are looking to be the favorite grandmother, right? So this is like, I want to be a kick-ass 90-year-old, right? And maybe you won't be a grandmother at 90. Maybe you'd be a grandmother at 70 or whatever. But how can I maintain, how can I work on some of these skills? Because all speed and strength are, are skills that have been practiced many, many times over many, many years. So what is something that I can do 
Is it a hit training? Can I go out on the street and run for like 45 seconds all out and then take like a five minute rest and then do it again? Uh, and how many times can I do that through the week? Is that one time, two times, three times? So I think that that's something really lovely to think about. And then in terms of strength, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, resistance training in today's podcast, but strength is something that we also want to be thinking about as well. So your peak strength, you know, the, the strongest you've ever been, you may not be able to acquire that in your, let's say your 40s or your 50s if, or your 60s if you're just starting out, or even if you're a seasoned lifter, um, but we want to be maintaining or you know, as Alan Aragon says, he wants to gain pain, right? So he wants to maintain his gains uh, as he's progressing through his 50s and eventually 60s and 70s, etc. Okay, so that's kind of the framework. That's sort of the preamble in terms of what's important for um, thinking about why we want to lift weights. So Part of it, yes, you're going to look great. You're going to have shoulder boulders. You're going to have a beautiful back. You're going to have a butt that you can bounce a quarter off of. All of those things are great, right? You're going to look great in your dress. You're going to look great in your jeans, all the things. And you're also going to live longer. The likelihood, if you are someone who is exercising, particularly with lifting weights and, um, you know, say, uh, utilizing drugs is going to be lower as well, because we know that as you, that last sort of quarter of your life, the, you know, again, using that 65 and older age category are the single biggest users of pharmaceuticals, right? Because we start getting high blood pressure. We start becoming more insulin insensitive. Maybe our lipid profiles aren't what they should be. So, or maybe our mood and our affect are changing. So we get put on statins, we get put on antidepressants, we get put on, you know, whatever, in, um, you know, whatever medications. And it's usually the case where um, one medication, you're on one, and then there's some type of side effect, uh, from the medication, and then you're put on another another medication for the side effect of the first medication. And then the idea at that point is just to manage you, right? It's never to actually get you off of the drug. It's to just manage the symptoms so that you can maintain the highest possible quality of life. And I believe that we can do better than that. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that you should never take drugs Ever, you know, you have a history of familial hypercholesterolemia, you should probably be on a statin. Um, you know, and of course, that also depends on your, your labs and, and, you know, the discussions that you have with your doctor. But I'm saying as a general rule, we want to be trying to minimize the amount of drugs that we are on. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about hormones. Um, and let's talk a little bit about um, how these change in, um, in menopause, in perimenopause, and why training is so important. So let's start with testosterone. Okay, so testosterone works inside the cell, it, 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 it's converted and binds to an androgen receptor and then sort of increases, um, um, transcription of different proteins. So basically, you know, testosterone, when we think about it, it is the most abundant sex hormone in the body. So both men and women, the most abundant sex hormone that we have more so than estrogen, even as well for, for women, like it's famous for, you know, we, we all associate testosterone, hopefully with building muscle. It's also involved in burning fat, it's intimately connected with our brain circuitry. Um, a lot of women in perimenopause will talk about this kind of brain fog or this lack of ambition or lack of uh, desire that they once had. Um, and part of that is due to waning testosterone levels. And then, of course, testosterone is also involved in the release of 
dopamine, right? There's a synergistic relationship between dopamine um, and testosterone, meaning that when one thing rises, so let's say when testosterone rises, so will dopamine, which is really great. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is involved in, I like to call it like the huntress neurotransmitter. So you are on the hunt, you are looking for the kill, you know, you're motivated to follow through on it, you're in pursuit. Um, it makes us feel, at least me, I know that I, when I have, let's say, finished a workout, finished a, a, like a really good lift session, I feel like I have brought home, like I've hunted and killed a, you know, uh, some type of elk or something and I, I'm bringing it back to the tribe. Like I feel so good about uh, what I've done. I feel high and I feel like my mind is clear and I, if I don't work out, I actually feel quite the opposite. Like I feel like I have a lot of energy and I don't know what to do with it. And I need to, you know, at least for me, I'd like to take out a lot of my, whether it's anger or rage or love, uh, all of it, uh, I leave it all on the, on the resist, on the weight floor. So, uh, that's testosterone. It's also, um, I, I don't think I mentioned this, but famous for libido, of course, uh, keeping metabolism strong. Um, and it starts declining in our thirties and drops more precipitously in perimenopause and, and menopause, um, certainly can be increased through weightlifting sunlight exposure. Andrew Huberman talks a lot about, uh, early morning sun exposure, which I love, um, that he talks about this activation of the retinal ganglionic cells, which then sort of, uh, speak to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is this sort of one millimeter by one millimeter nuclei, a nucleus in the brain, which is like the, what we call the master clock. Um, nasal breathing can also do it as well. So when we are resistance training, um, we see a post-exercise rise in testosterone in across all individuals. Now, the difference between someone who's trained and someone who's untrained is kind of where it gets a little interesting. So for someone who has been training for, let's say, more, we'll say a, a trained individual often in the literature is defined as someone who's been regularly training more than six months. I think that's a little light, but we'll just go with that definition, okay? Um, versus someone who's non-trained, who hasn't been working out or hasn't been exercising, uh, let's say regularly for six months or less. So what happens is depending on how uh, depending on trained or untrained, uh, in a trained individual, you're probably going to see a post-exercise rise in testosterone somewhere in the range of maybe 10 to 20-ish hour, hours. So call it half a day to a full day after you have trained, you're going to see a, a potential rise in testosterone. With an untrained individual, you are going to see that last much longer, right? So they are going to have a rise in testosterone, sometimes like two days, even like up to three days after the workout. And so I really like this because um, this is, you know, again, referencing Alan uh, Aragon here. He likes to call these those new, and he, I mean, he's not the only one, but I do like the way that he talks about it. Um, he talks about these newbie gains with the Z, right? So you can at any point in time, right? So you can be 45 and say, gosh, darn it. Like I've never trained before. It's too late. I'm too old. I'm never going to get the type of gains that I could have gotten when I was 25 and doing this. And that may be true, but it's not too late and you're not too old. Like the best time for you to have started weight training was... 20 years ago, the second best time for you to start weight training is today. 
right? Because you are still going to be able to collect that, if that collect, if you will, that secret bonus, those newbie gains where you, the velocity of your progress is going to be absolutely astonishing, particularly in the first six weeks, you know, maybe even in some individuals, you might even extend that out to like eight or 12 weeks of training. You are going to see an incredible amount of progress in a very short period of time. So this is really important when we're thinking about a perimenopausal and a menopausal woman, because we do see like all, you know, starting in our thirties, we start to see this sort of stepwise decline in testosterone if we're not regularly training. So we know that if we're training somewhere between three and four times a week, that even in a trained individual, right? So a trained individual in perimenopause, so even if you're like, listen, I've been training for years, like this doesn't apply to me. It totally does because you can be training really, really heavy three to four times a week and you are going to, and if you space it out, right, let's say every other day you're training, you're going to have this post-exercise rise in testosterone somewhere between 10 and 20 hours, Right that's incredible, right? That's almost a day. Um, so that's going to be wonderful for you. And then providing that you're giving yourself the right substrate, like we'll talk about protein and talk about carbohydrates momentarily, you're going to be able to really profit off of all the benefits that testosterone has to offer a perimenopausal and menopausal woman. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna it's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about growth hormone because... This is another hormone that we see declining in our, call it 40s and 50s. Growth hormone, um, as the name suggests, um, helps with growth. Um, it increases in response to resistance training. It also increases overnight as we sleep. The one thing I do want to make sure that we clarify, because I think there is some confusion about growth hormone in the online space, is that growth hormone is not anabolic to muscle. Okay, so it is it, not in the same way that testosterone is. So testosterone is anabolic to muscle. Estrogen, anabolic to muscle. Okay, and I'll talk about estrogen in just a moment. Growth hormone is not, right? So we want to be, we want to be um, really understanding the, um, the difference between, let's say, a localized, right? So like a local response versus a systemic response. So so when we talk about en- like an endocrine uh, effect, the effect is systemic, right? Insulin is a great example of this, right? So when we are thinking about a systemic effect, if we have, let's say, too much or too little insulin, that is going to be, you are going to see impacts across the body, okay? A paracrine effect 
is going to be impacting the tissues just like kind of in the area, right? So para or pen usually kind of means around the around the organ or around the tissue that we're that we're talking about. And then autocrine from the Greek oftos meaning self is like when the organ or the tissue or the gland is impacting itself. So, for example, you cannot build your arms with leg training. So when we are, let's say, doing squats, you're not going to build your biceps. Like you, we all know this. We all know this to be true. And that is really demonstrative of this idea that, or the difference, let's say, between a localized versus a, a systemic response. Because otherwise, I could just do bicep curls and build my glutes, right? It doesn't make sense that I would that that would be that that would be the case. So growth hormone is important. It does increase with exercise, and with women in particular, we do seem to have an advantage for how long it takes to, to reach peak growth hormone secretion. So there does seem to be some sexual dimorphic um, properties to growth hormones. So for, um, for women, we do seem to reach the peak of growth hormone secretion somewhere in the 20 to 30 minute after we've started exercising around 20 to 30 minutes later, obviously depending, making sure that the intensity is appropriate, that you are going to reach kind of peak growth hormone secretion, which is great. Our male counterparts actually need longer. They need somewhere between that 40, like it's usually double that. So 40 to 60 minutes of exercise in order to sort of reach that peak growth hormone, um, secretion. And, um, I believe that I mentioned like testosterone growth hormone is in, in, responsible for helping to improve lean muscle mass, but not skeletal tissue, right? So it's not anabolic to muscles, muscles but it's helping overall lean uh, body mass. And it's also helping to reduce uh, uh, adiposity in general, like our fat stores. Okay. So uh, again, growth hormone is increased with, um, with weight training, but this is not going to be something that when we see growth hormone increasing, we're not necessarily going to see an increase in muscle hypertrophy per se. There's sort of like an indirect effect um, that it has. I want to talk a little bit about estrogen because as many of you know, uh, estrogen can be wildly different um, over the course of our 40s and certainly into our 50s. And in order to kind of explain a little bit of this, um, I want to just back up for a moment and talk about what happens in the muscles when we are trying to grow them. Okay. So obviously you want to have a tough workout. You want to have a, uh, a workout with resistance training where there have been at least 10 hard working sets. Uh, a hard working set is kind of, there's a couple of different ways that you might classify or qualify them, but you're either getting very close to failure or, you have increased the volume such that, so maybe your RPE is like an, an eight or a nine out of 10, meaning like your rate of perceived exertion on that set was an eight, a nine, even maybe a 10. Or you increase your volume and maybe your RPE is a little lower. So instead of it being like you have to work an eight or a nine or a 10, maybe your RPE is like a six or a seven, but you have more volume. So instead of doing three sets, maybe you're doing five. Instead of four sets, maybe you're doing six, that kind of thing. So that is what I would classify when I say a tough workout. It means like you're kind of finished afterwards, right? Um, 
Maybe soreness the next day, not necessarily. You don't need to be sore all the time. Soreness is more a function of novelty than it is around an effective workout. But if you're never sore after a workout, it means you're not working hard enough, right? If you're always sore, <laughs> you know, the con- uh, the opposite, if you're always sore, um, you're probably working the muscle too often in the lengthened position. We'll, we'll come back to that. But I just wanted to kind of define tough workout. What's a tough workout? It's like 10 hard working sets. Okay. So when we're thinking about skeletal muscle, right? So we're thinking about growing that skeletal muscle. It's regulated at least, well, there's many things that regulate it, but in terms of like molecular processes, uh, we're looking at things like satellite cell activity. So we have these cells Um, And without kind of getting into a lot of details here, we are kind of donating these satellite cells to the muscle. Like when we look at the muscle, it's multinucleated. There's not just one nucleus, there's several. Um, So we have the satellite cell activity, we have gene transcription, and we have protein translation. All of these things, okay, so these are just like big nerdy words. Uh, They're strongly influenced by IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, which is a proxy for growth hormone. This is actually how we might measure growth hormone. And when we optimize our estrogen levels, okay, so this is where, this is why I want to talk about estrogen. When we optimize our estrogen levels, these muscle building processes, the satellite cell activity, the gene transcription, the protein translation, they are going to be supported with optimal levels of estrogen, which is going to lead to an increased rate of lean muscle tissue accrual. What the hell am I saying here? Okay, so (laughs) let's talk about this from the lens of a perimenopausal woman. And then I want to talk about my menopausal ladies because I promise I will not forget you. I never will. Okay, so we know from the menstrual cycle that your progesterone rises once you ovulate. So you cannot produce progesterone unless you ovulate. Okay, so we ovulate somewhere day 14, day 15, day 16, whatever. um, And then progesterone starts to rise progesterone's job other like obviously progesterone is going to be priming the endometrium for implantation that's obviously one of her primary roles but she also will down regulate estrogen okay so she will reduce estradiol's role in the development of the endometrium because in the follicular phase estrogen is the primary anabolic hormone right so it's devel- it's called the follicular phase because estrogen is and specifically estradiol is working to develop the um uh, the follicle and to, to a, a secondary effect, the endometrial lining. Progesterone will decrease the concentration of estrogen receptors in the endometrium. She will increase the enzymes, like progesterone's not playing, okay? She increases the enzymes that convert estradiol to estrone, which is kind of like a weaker uh, estrogen, and then increases estrone locally. So progesterone basically comes in as like, thanks so much, boo, but I don't need you anymore. (laughs) So it's like, we're going to just decrease your receptors, right? So you can't activate anything. And the estradiol that's around, we're actually going to just convert you to a weaker form of yourself. Okay. So this is what progesterone does. And the other thing it does too, for, for my clinicians that are listening, as you may know, is it also increases estrone sulfatase. So it also is is also degrading the estrone locally that's being produced, right? So, um, it's basically rendering estrogen neutral. So estrogen's like the big, you know, the big, uh, kind of personality, if you will, in the first half of the cycle. And then progesterone comes in the second half of the cycle. It's like, actually settle down. I'm here now. I got it. I'll take care of everything. So 
why I'm telling you this is particularly for my women in um, late perimenopause. So early perimenopause, we have the problem of having sometimes too much estrogen. It goes unchecked relative to progesterone. So a lot of women in their early 40s, like 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, we are, we are running estrogen dominant in the luteal phase of the cycle. Okay. And then it, after 45, call it like my, usually my experience tells me some, sometime around 47, 48 years of age. Now we start to see not only is progesterone low in this woman, but now we also see estrogen, all sorts of estrogen, but primarily estradiol is starting to decrease as well, right? The ovaries are no longer able to support the type of production that we once had in our twenties and our thirties. So we st- we start to see lowered levels of estrogen in our late 40s, okay? Now, why I am going on and on about this, estrogen plays a role in growth hormone production, both the anabolic, so the muscle hypertrophy, uh, and lipolytic effects, right, um, that have been well elucidated um, uh, that, that happens from, from, from training. So the, bo- the bottom line here is that without adequate estrogen, so this is for my ladies that are 47, 8, 9, 51, 2, 3, et cetera, uh, without adequate estrogen, your growth hormone levels can suffer, which is going to generally make gaining muscle and losing body fat more difficult. So some of you 55-year-olds, I can already hear you saying like, duh, I get it. I already know that, right? But this is why, this is part of the reason why we have sort of this central uh, belly gain, if you will, like there's, there are other factors, there's cortisol and there's some other things, but a lot of times when we are gaining excess adipose tissue, fat, uh, ectopic fat distribution through the belly and other areas, like kind of throughout the body, um, part of it is because of our hampered ability to produce growth hormone because of this lowered estrogen levels. Okay. So said another way, (laughs) all that to say growth hormone works better with estrogen. Okay. Um, And this is why training is so very important because I mentioned that testosterone is anabolic. Estrogen is also anabolic as well, right? So the more that we are lifting weights, the better that we are going to have that post-exercise rise in testosterone, hopefully in estrogen um, as well. And as I mentioned, you know, Huberman at all, you know, have talked about things like nose breathing, getting exposure to that early morning sunlight to reset that circadian rhythm, um, to mitigate that cortisol, um, active, like that cortisol awakening response. Um, but I do, and I think that those are very important. So I think that those are very simple ways that we want to, you know, when you wake up within 30 minutes, find the light, right? Find the sunlight, tape your mouth if you need to, um, if you're someone who tends to be a mouth breather. Um, but I want you to be thinking about like, what are the big buckets that I can play in that are going to make a meaningful difference in my life? Sunshine for sure. Nasal breathing for sure, but lift heavy weights, right? Uh, this is kind of a non-negotiable irrespective of the medication that you're on, irrespective if you are dealing with an arthritis, you're dealing with an acute injury, you're dealing with, you know, an autoimmune condition, exercise, you know, obviously if you have an arthritis, you know, if you have like osteopenia or rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis or something like that, you do need to be working with like a chiropractor or a physical therapist or somebody who, or, you know, a personal trainer who really understands some of these um, conditions because, you know, I'll make a little segue here for my, my, 
my people who are dealing with OA or RA or PA or whatever, um, the goal for someone with an arthritide is not necessarily to be lifting heavy. The goal with someone with an arthritide is actually to maintain full range of motion, which we'll talk about maybe another time. Maybe I'll do another solo episode on, honestly, I could speak for a year on rheumatoid arthritis. <laughs> I could probably speak for two years uh, on psoriatic arthritis uh, and osteopenia and osteoarthritis and all the things. So, um, but we want to be thinking about with arthritis specifically, you want to be thinking about maintaining range of motion. So if that gives you permission not to always go into the gym and crank out heavy weights, I hope that that helps, but you should certainly be working with a professional who can help guide you there. Um, but my whole point here is that we want to be majoring in the majors, right? Like what are the major things that are going to make a meaningful difference for me? Is it going to be nose breathing? Yeah. But is what is going to be the best bang for my buck? It's setting aside 45 minutes to an hour, four to five times a week to lift some heavy weights. All right, let's talk a little bit about cortisol. Um, you've probably heard me on the show before, but it's worth repeating that I think that we want to also be aware, like growth hormone, cortisol can have acute versus systemic effects, okay? So exercise is an acute stress, okay? It's a, a you may have heard of the term hormesis or hormetic um, effect, Exercise, and this is something, you know, I'll give credit uh, where credit is due. Um, I, I remember reading, um, it, was, uh, it was Lane Norton's, um, he had a commentary on, uh, and I'll link this out in the show notes, I'll have to find, I have to find the link, but I remember reading it in its entirety. It was uh, after Paul Saladino had gone on the Joe Rogan uh, podcast, Lane Norton uh, did not like a lot of the claims that were being made and then created sort of a... Uh, I guess debunked might be the word that he had used. I forget the name of the of the of the page, but he basically went through all the claims that were made and sort of had alternative views on it. And one of the things that he was talking about was this idea that, you know, I can make exercise look scary if I really want to, right? If there is, if I were to say to you, um, okay, the um, let me think about um if I were to do something for you that is going to cause uh, acute DNA damage, um, there, uh, let me think, uh, acute inflammatory and oxidative, something that you're going to do that's going to increase acute inflammatory and oxidative stress markers, uh, acute hypertension during resistance training, elevated stress hormones, suppressed immune function, uh, heart attack, stroke, uh, gosh, atrial fibrillation. Uh, would you do it? Well, like that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Right. But that's what exercise does. Right? <laughs> you know, exercise does all of those things, right? It can cause, it can cause acute DNA damage. It can cause uh, acute inflammatory and oxidative stress markers to increase. It can cause acute hypertension. It can cause elevated stress hormone, suppressed immune function, heart attack, stroke, atrial fibrillation, all of those things, right? So you can, you know, and I remember Lane saying like, I can really, if I wanted to, I could make exercise sound really scary. And it's, you know, we have to really understand and remember the difference between an adaptive stress like exercise, where it does transiently, uh, let's say, make the body worse, but over the long term, that adaptation makes us stronger and harder to kill, right? So we want to be thinking about that versus a long-term stress where we have, uh, let's say we are in a, an abusive relationship or we have long-term exposure to uh, mold or um, 
you know, you injured yourself at the gym or you fell off a ladder or you fell down. And now you have all these compensatory movement strategies that are causing other aches and pains throughout the body and that are causing other problems elsewhere. So cortisol is also, um, it's good and it's bad, right? It's a counter-regulatory hormone. It's involved in immune system. It's involved in keeping our immune system in check. So I, I want us to move away from always thinking about stress as being bad. Like stress and maybe even changing the word stress to demands, I think might even be better. So if we are able to rise up to the level of our demands, you know, it's this whole idea that life doesn't get easier, you just get stronger, right? So you're never going to get rid of stress, right? The only way to cruise is downhill. So the only time, you know, it's like I, one of my, um, dear friends, uh, Alex, he's a business, uh, mentor, shout out to Alex Sharfin, uh, talks about this idea is like the only time you're never going to have problems in your business is when you've closed your business, right? It's like the only time, and I'll sort of extrapolate that to human health. It's like the only time you're never going to have any stress or demands in your life is when you're dead, right? Like that's the time when it's not going to happen. So don't wish for no stress, work on making yourself stronger to rise up to the demands of your life. Okay. So stress is not a bad thing, right? There's, I talk about this in the Betty body. It's like, and I think that my, um, in, in my infinite hilariousness, I think I had called it good stress, bad stress, one stress, one stress, two stress, good stress, bad stress. Um, just if you are a, a student of Dr. Seuss, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Okay. So those are some of the hormones that I think are important as considerations in terms of how we can manage them through resistance training. The other thing I didn't mention, which I'll just throw into the, uh, what am I trying to say? Pot for your consideration. I don't think that's what I'm trying to say, but I'll throw into the, into the ring. That's what I'm trying to say for your consideration is that the more that we resistance train, uh, the more we, especially for our women who are in early perimenopause, uh, it does favorably balance progesterone and estrogen levels. So it does seem to help stimulate more progesterone secretion after you've ovulated. So it's just something, something for you to consider as well. We have to work hard, ladies. I know that we want the easy thing. We want the ozempic. We want the whatever. We want to snap our fingers and have the body of our dreams. But if that were the case, everyone would have a six pack and be a billionaire. Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, the paradox in life uh, certainly is that the things that are worth having are usually hard to get. Uh, it means you got to work. It means you got to become the person that is worthy of receiving some of those gifts. So a little bit of philosophy there for you. Um, as well. Okay. So a lot of you, whenever I speak to you, uh, whether it's online on Instagram or you're emailing my, uh, support desk, which I also, um, uh, monitor as well is this idea of weight loss, right? It's like, I'm in my forties. I don't look like I did in my twenties or all of a sudden in the last, you know, year, two years, six months, whatever the time is, I've gained all of this weight. And I wanted to, talk a little bit about some weight loss strategies and also kind of give you an understanding of some of the factors that are affecting total energetic expenditure. Okay. So weight loss. And when we say weight loss, I will say that I'm going to use the term weight loss and fat loss interchangeably. I don't want you to lose brain weight. I don't want you, <laughs> I don't want you to lose muscle weight. Uh, if you overly aggressively fast, if you overly aggressively do cardio, if you overly aggressively calorically restrict or all three or some combination thereof, you're going to lose not just fat mass, uh, you will lose other things as well, like muscle mass and brain mass and organ mass and, you know, fluid as well, which we'll, which we'll touch on today as well. 
But I do think that it's important for you to understand that if you do have some weight to lose, part of your strategy for success is expectation management, accepting some level of hunger um, as part of the weight loss process is is important, right? Um, metabolism and energy balance is so much more complicated than, you know, if we only looked on social media, that's like, take this one supplement and you can, you know, lose this amount of weight, right? Whenever you are uh, trying to lose weight, you are going to need to use some kind of restriction, okay? So that restriction might be um, a macronutrient type of restriction. So you might either restrict your carbohydrates, like you might in a ketogenic diet, uh, you might restrict fat, uh, like you might in a higher protein, higher carbohydrate, uh, diet, um, you can use time as a restriction. So like, you know, an eating window or like time restricted eating intermittent fasting, or you can restrict your calories, right? So you can still eat the same things that you always eat. You just eat less of it. Right. And I think that the, all of those things are going to work, right? I personally am a fan for women in their forties of, a therapeutic intervention of a ketogenic diet, and then kind of moving from that into more of a higher protein, um, potentially higher carbohydrate, depending on the person's lifestyle. Um, but certainly like, I like ketogenic diet to start and then I like high protein afterwards. And then we kind of manipulate the other macros. Um, and I like that paired with, um, some type of, uh, caloric restriction. But the point here is that you need to pick what restriction is easiest for you to do over the long term, right? Heal thyself, doctor. You know what's going to work for you. And we've all seen everybody on, like you've seen the individuals online that will say things like, I just did a 16-8 fast and it just, that's what I did. And it was like the easiest thing for me. And I dropped 30 pounds and I, all my markers, all my inflammatory markers improved, my lipid levels. And it's like, awesome. And that's not going to work for everybody. There's going to be other individuals that are going to say, the ketogenic diet saved my life. It was so much easier for me to carbohydrate restrict and not restrict necessarily calories, but to restrict uh, carbohydrates, let's say, which usually ends up, have you end up being in some kind of caloric deficit there. But for some people, restricting carbohydrates seem to be easier. I'm one of those people. I find that restricting, I tend to have more of a call it a savory umami uh, type of palate. Like I prefer the richness in foods. Um, so the things like the muffins and the cake and the, that stuff doesn't really appeal to me. So I, when I want to do some type of restriction, it's usually a carbohydrate uh, type of restriction coupled with some caloric restriction as well. Um, and then there's the, so we, we talked about the time restriction. We talked, talked about the macro restriction, and then you can just simply eat less. Like you can just, you know, um, I can't remember who I saw talking about this, but she was saying something like, you know, she used to be overweight and then what she did to kind of get her weight under control, well, she still ate everything that she did, but she just put it on a smaller plate, right? So any of you that are either listening in Europe or North Americans who travel to Europe, um, every time that I travel to uh, France, uh, Greece, Italy, part of my um, maybe shock, if you will, a uh, culture shock maybe, is that everybody has like a croissant or a cornetto in the morning with a coffee, like that's breakfast, which I don't necessarily agree with, but that's what everyone has. But that's it, right? They have a cappuccino and a cornetto. And then 
uh, you know, when they have lunch, their lunch, the lunch plates that, you know, if we, if you eat, if you're going to, I remember when we sat down somewhere in Rome for lunch, like the, the plate that we were eating on was the equivalent to like my salad plate. <laughs> so, you know, like my wedding, you know, my wedding plates or whatever, you have like the dinner plate and then you have the salad plate and you have the bowls. And you have the thing. So the dinner plates that they use in Europe are often the set, what we would call the salad plates uh, here in North America. So you're eating just generally less food because you can't fit as much crap on, <laughs> on the salad plate than you can on the dinner plate, right? But the whole point of me saying this is that if you are someone who wants to lose weight, play with all three of these type of strategies. So play with macro restrictions. So maybe you want to try a ketogenic diet for a little bit, play with time restrictions. So maybe you want to limit your food such that you're not eating past a certain time in the night, let's say, or just try eating everything that you normally do, but just lighten up, just lighten up the portions a little bit, just make them a, a squeak smaller. Um, and then what you can figure out about yourself is what actually works best for you. And I think that that is such a powerful knowing in terms of what's easiest for you to adhere to, um, over time. So one of the things I want you to become aware of, of course, is that when we are eating and we are choosing some type of, let's say some type of restriction, uh, whether it's caloric, it's macronutrient, it's timing. Um, there's lots of factors that influence energy in versus energy out or Kiko, if you will, CICO, depending on how you say the C's with calories in calories out, CICO is the abbreviation. I think Kiko, I think it sounds cuter. Um, but when we think about like some of the factors that influence how we, uh, like the calories in, let's say, um, obviously your appetite, which, and the hormones, of course, that govern them. Um, and that's going to change for women in perimenopause who are still cycling and for women in their twenties and thirties, that's going to, that's going to change relative to where you are in your menstrual cycle, which I talk about in the Betty body. The type of food that you eat is also very important. So hyper palatable foods are very difficult to stop eating, right? It's like, bet you can't eat just one of those Lay's potato chips. And they're right. <laughs> it's very hard to eat just one. Those foods tend to be hyper palatable. They tend to be very dense in energy. Um, you know, whole foods versus, uh, you know, I'll say processed foods, but you know, there's so many, like, you know, technically, you know, I, I rice, my, like I, I shred my broccoli, uh, and I'll make like a, you know, Air, I'm using air quotes like broccoli rice or cauli cauliflower rice, right? That's technically processed, but I think you know what I'm talking about. If you're just eating like protein bars all day long and, um, you know, peanut butter um, versus having uh, vegetables with fiber that have sort of the voluminous, like they're, you know, you can sort of, they're high volume, low nutrient density, um, that's going to influence influence you. Certainly education can be an influence and like your culture, right? Like your cultural background, where you come from, what you learned about food, what you learned about eating. Um, I can tell you from coming from an immigrant family, uh, Portuguese on one side, Lebanese on the other, it was like, you finish your food. Um, because there are people in Africa, like this was the story that I was told, you know, there's people in Africa that can't afford to eat. And here you are just like pushing away this liver and onions. That was the food that I just despised the most because <laughs> I was like essentially force fed uh, liver and onions when I was, when I was younger. And um, it's probably part of the reason why I can't stomach liver now. Um, I can have liver worst, but I can't have liver. 
but certainly what we learned about food, right? Finish your plate, right? Like this is such a waste of food. It's such a waste of money, right? So th- think about some of these things when, um, when you're thinking about how you consume your food. And now I often, you know, now I, I catch myself, I sort of call it like the mom diet, you know, like my kids will sort of pick at their food. Uh, certainly I'm always trying to give them protein. It's like, you, they got to get their protein points. But then if they leave something on the plate, I'm like, oh my, like in my head, my default is like, oh my God, I got to finish that up. Even though the money's already been spent, you know, I've already used the energy to prepare the food or whatever, instead of like polishing off the last couple of bits of whatever's on their plate, like to remind myself that that wasn't for me um, as well. So food consumed, your appetite and the uh, 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 hormones that govern them. Um, calories, how they are absorbed and transported. So this is like gut health, um, certainly, uh, the macronutrient content, um, intestinal permeability, uh, your age, that's gonna, that's really going to influence it. And then your psychological factors, right? Like what's your stress levels like? Are you eating in front of your phone, Aldesco, as I like to say, or are you eating with people? Are you slowly consuming your food, savoring your food over a long Delta or are you just like shoveling it into your mouth as quickly as you can in the car in between appointments, right? Um, certainly thinking about thinking about some of those psychological factors, your your own self-esteem, right? A lot of people will use food as a soothing, uh, inappropriately as a soothing um, a tool. And then, you know, how much sleep you've had the night before. We all know that we eat more crap when we're not well, when we're not well rested, um, that kind of thing. And then the same, you know, kind of on the opposite side. So those are some of the factors that influence calories in that CI part of CICO. And then factors influencing calories out are going to be things like your basal metabolic rate, right? Again, hormonal status is going to influence that, um, you know, your age, how well rested you are, your dieting history, your muscle mass, like your lean muscle mass. Um, there's going to be some genetic influence in there as well. How much calories you burn through exercise, you know, that eat less, move more mantra. So on the outside, it is, even though I think that that, that, recommendation is vague, uh, calorie, like eat less and move more does hold a lot of weight. It's just the type of movement that you're getting, right? So, um, what's the frequency, what's the intensity, what's the duration of the activity, right? What's your muscle mass? What's your age? How well rested you are kind of some of these common themes you're probably going to be hearing over and over again. Uh, and then neat non-exercise activity thermogenesis. This is kind of the spontaneous, like if you're watching me on YouTube, you can sort of see my, uh, my flair for the, my flair for the theatrics with my hands, right? Cause my hands are like kind of moving as I'm talking. Um, that's neat, right? So neat is not a walk around the, it's not necessarily a walk around the block, but it's all of the sort of spontaneous movements that you, um, engage in over the course of the day. Uh, this is why we often see individuals with eating disorders. Um, they know, let's say that the soleus muscle, so the part of the muscle on the, uh, in the back of the calf, uh, they will, you'll often see them like fidgeting, like you'll often see them like toe tapping almost because they're trying to increase that neat. Um, because you do that, one time, not really much of a difference, but you do that several thousand times, you contract that soleus muscle, let's say several thousand times over the course of the day, and you're going to be starting to burn, you know, hundreds of calories. Um, so this is some of the, um, maybe some of the challenges with an individual with an eating disorder is they, they've kind of learned some of these little tricks to increase their calories out, uh, while minimizing their, their calories in, um, as well. And then the last piece I want to talk about is like the thermal effect of food. Uh, so this is, um, something that I find 
uh, really interesting because um, the foods that we eat have a different, it takes a, di- a certain amount of energy to break them down. And usually protein is the um, hardest, if you will, um, to break down. It's a very inefficient system to consume protein. And so just using a you know very uh, basic explanation, if you have like 100 calories, let's say, of protein that you consume, 20 to 30%, you're going to, you're going to spend 20 to 30% of that hundred calories trying to actually break down the protein and extract the nutrients from it. So you might end up only consuming, if it's a hundred calories, the net calories that you've taken in at the end of the day might be 80, right? Um, might be 70, let's say. So it's an inefficient system. Um, but that's not a bad thing, right? So it also helps us, um, you know, that heat is used for something like that's kind of one of the more beautiful things about metabolism that I have such an appreciation for. It's like, you can say, Oh, it's so inefficient to have protein. It's like, yeah, you know, we, we, we exalt all of this heat, but there's a reason for that heat. Like there's something somewhere else that's benefiting or profiting, um, from that, uh, carbs on the other hand, a little less, uh, they're kind of clocking in somewhere between five and 10%, depending on the carbohydrate, you know, all carbohydrates are not made equal. Um, so again, with that hundred calorie example, um, you might be taking in 95 or 90 calories at the end of the day after you've sort of broken down the, um, the carb, you know, you've sort of slashed all the, all the starch bonds and the, you've, you've been able to extract, um, the glucose from it. And then fat clocks in with the least amount of food. So you're basically what, and, and fat is quite energy dense, right? So, um, let's say you have, again, hundred calories of fat, olive oil, whatever it is. Uh, only 2%, like zero to 2%. So you take in a hundred calories and you're probably getting in 98 to hundred calories of fat. Um, so if you compare that to like 70 to 80 calories of protein, uh, you can very quickly see, and like fat, you know, it's, for me, it's hard to overdo the fat, but for some individuals you might see where you might be eating, uh, you might overdo it because it's also, I mean, the other thing that I haven't really talked about is the, is the density, right? There's a difference in density of fat versus carbohydrates and protein, right? It's more than double the density per gram, more calories. It's nine kcals per gram fat versus carbs and protein, which clock in at four. So now that we're talking a little bit about protein and carbohydrates, I want to loop this back if I can to fitness and I want to bridge this with muscle protein synthesis, which you've heard me talk about um, before. I was mentioning to you the um, uh, testosterone rise post-exercise. We also obviously have um, muscle protein synthesis that happens post-exercise. It can also happen post-protein consumption um, as well. And it seems like, again, in trained versus untrained individuals, right? So you've had a heavy lift, you've had a heavy weightlifting session, um, provided enough substrate is available. So provided we have enough protein, um, maybe we've taken some creatine. Um, usually, um, when we are consuming, um, let's say like enough protein, you're going to have muscle protein synthesis somewhere in the range Uh, It's going to kind of peak 90 minutes after your meal. And then it's kind of back to baseline, like maybe where it was, um, you know, two to two and a half hours um, after you've consumed, um, uh, after you've consumed that protein. You can't just build muscle from having protein, but when you couple protein, I mean, I guess technically you can, I guess that's not 
technically an accurate statement, but you're going to get the most bang for your buck when you provide a chemical and mechanical stimulus. So the mechanical stimulus is the, is the lifting and the lifting heavy and doing those heavy working sets. And you're coupling that with enough substrate. So you're coupling that with protein, which is going to drive that MPS. And you're also going to drive the, the transcription factors like we were talking about before with the testosterone, the growth hormone, the estrogen, the IGF-1. Okay. So those two things really do need to coexist together. You can't just have a high protein diet. Uh, and you, and I would argue that you can't just, um, lift weights and then go and have like bags and bags of Skittles. Um, I mean, maybe if you're a freak of nature, uh, that might work for you, but in terms of longevity and in, for, in terms of feeling good and in terms of giving your body what it needs in order to grow, uh, certainly not the best, uh, certainly not the best strategy. All right. So we've talked a little bit about, uh, fitness. We've talked about MPS. We've talked about hormonal subscription, uh, hormonal factors that influence, um, muscle hypertrophy. The other last piece, and I did this in a previous AMA, but I'll just bring it up here because I'm always asked this question. It's about creatine monohydrate. Um, and creatine of course is involved in, um, the phosphocreatinin system where this is, you know, the first call it 10 seconds of burst activity. So if you think about, um, and it might even be sub 10, but if you think about a hundred meter dash, right? That's really what we're talking about. We're talking about the Usain Bolts. Um, it is important that we saturate the muscle stores first. So you can do this a number of ways. The first is that you take five grams daily for about a month. And then after about a month, your muscle store, your muscle stores are saturated. And then you can start profiting from, from, the strength benefits, the performative benefits, the recovery, you'll be, you'll recover faster from your workouts. You'll have cognitive benefits as well. You can also load it up in a week if you're impatient. <laughs> so, uh, you might consider doing like 20 grams, um, over the course of a week, you know, call it six, seven days. And then you're going to saturate the myocyte at that point as well. If you don't need to cycle it, you can take it all the time. Um, you can take it on days that you're training. You can take it on days that you're not training. Uh, and you're going to get some of the incredible benefits that creatine has to offer. So I would say, uh, in terms of muscle building, muscle performance, uh, and muscle recovery, this is an absolutely necessary supplement. There are others. I think vitamin D is very important. I think magnesium is very important. Uh, omega threes are very important. Um, but I tend to be more of a supplement minimalist. So if you're gonna, if there's something that you're going to invest in, like you can invest in those three, but creatine specifically is going to help with your performance in the gym. So you're going to feel stronger. You're going to have better performance, probably better lift technique. And then recovery, the recovery benefits is, is also where some of the secret sauce and some of the magic is as well. Uh, and I'll make sure that we link out. I have a small little Amazon storefront. You can kind of check out some of the products that I really love and I use myself and I have the creatine that I use in there, but it's not necessarily that you use that one. It's just any creatine monohydrate will do. Okay. Okay. So I hope that you found this little geeky magic carpet ride into perimenopausal exercise, hip fractures, and some of the hormonal, um, influences, uh, that we deal with in perimenopause and how, you know, our testosterone and estrogen and IGF one and growth hormone and cortisol, how those things can influence hypertrophy of skeletal muscle tissue. Um, I would love to hear if you want me to talk about certain topics, certain subjects, please let us know. You can leave us reviews on iTunes. You can leave us ratings and questions on Spotify. We love and we monitor those regularly. And you can also comment on our 
YouTube channel. We have a small but mighty uh, YouTube channel uh, with the same name, uh, Dr. Stephanie Stima, or better with Dr. Stephanie Stima. So you can check out the full length videos. You can see me uh, in video, in you know, uh, in re in real life, or maybe. Uh, you can see me kind of animated it and you can see how much my hands move when I talk. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but yes, you can check us out on YouTube as well. We'll have the links there for you. And thank you once again for your time and for your focus. I know that you're busy and important and that you spent this time with me is very meaningful. So until next time, I'll see you soon. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only and the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.